we want to continue along the, the series that we've been teaching for some time on uh, spiritual development, being a spirit-filled Christian, what that really means. And um, we've been using a number of uh, scriptures. Two of the, the main texts that we've been using is Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 27 and Romans chapter 8 and verse 14. Proverbs twenty twenty seven says, The spirit of man is the candle of the Lord, searching all the inward parts of the belly. We uh, started off with 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 23 some weeks ago, talking about the threefold nature of man. We identified that man, uh, identified by the scripture, that man is a spirit, he has a soul, and he lives in a body. We located the spirit according to what the Bible says. We differentiated between the spirit, soul, and the body and spent some time doing that. And then we found that, uh, uh, that then we went to talking about how to develop in spirit so that we can be led effectively by the Holy Ghost. Now, Romans chapter 8, verse 14 says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. So every child of God should be expected or is expected by God and should expect in their own lives to be led by the Holy Ghost. Now, the real question is how? If we just stop there, if the Bible just stops there and doesn't give us any further instruction about how he's going to lead us, then we're left to people determining for themselves based on their own opinions or feelings or or thoughts or ideas or whatever else uh, on how that is. And you know as well as I do, there's a lot of people in the body of Christ saying they're being led by God that are doing things that are contrary to what the Bible says. Well, that can't be right because the Bible says the Word and the Spirit always agree. So how are we going to be led by the Spirit of God? Well, verse 16 of Romans chapter 8 tells us the primary way we can be led. The Spirit himself, King James says it, itself, but he's not an it. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are the children of God or the sons of God. In other words, the number one way that the Holy Ghost is going to lead you in your life is by bearing witness with your spirit, not your flesh and not your soul. In other words, he's not going to lead you through your thoughts. He's not going to lead you through your feelings. He's going to lead you by the inward witness. And because, in my opinion, there is so little understanding of what that inward witness is, there's so little Christian, uh, so little effectiveness in the lives of most Christians. They're hit and miss at best. Folks, the Holy Ghost is not hit and miss. He never misses. So if we develop a sensitivity of spirit, if we understand how to develop ourselves to be led by the Holy Ghost by recognizing that inward witness, we can never miss it too. I'm not saying Christians won't ever miss it. Certainly we do. I know I have. I assume all of the rest of us have too. But the more I learn about being led by the Holy Ghost, the more I feed myself on the Word of God so that I can rightly judge the things that I hear, whether they be from God or from some other source, then the more and more successful and effective I am as a believer. Amen? Now we talked, uh, turn back with me to Proverbs chapter 1. We talked to some length about developing in spirit and the four steps to spiritual development. And three of them had to do with the Word. The first was meditate in the word. The second was be a doer of the word. The third was give the word first place or put it first place in your life. And number four was instantly obey the voice of your spirit. Three of the four steps have to do with the word. Now, why is that? I want to stop for just a minute this morning and and lay a little bit different foundation so we can go in a a little different direction in being led by the spirit. Here's why it's so important to develop a foundation of the word of God in your own heart. Notice in... uh, Proverbs chapter 1, beginning in verse 23. The writer of the book of Proverbs is, is speaking of the word of God, specifically wisdom. He calls the word of God wisdom. 
And he's speaking of the word of God or wisdom in the first person. And so it's like, here's the word of God talking to you. Now, we know the word of God is from God, and so here it's the same as God speaking to you. And look at the way that it says it. Beginning in verse 23, it says, Turn you at my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit unto you, and I will make known my words unto you. Notice the only way you're going to make, you're going to know the words of God or know the God's direction in your life is if you accept his correction. If you've got it figured out that your way is the best way, you can forget hearing from God. And that's the very reason why most people, or, or many people, I won't say most, but that's the very reason why many people fail to hear the voice of God, because they're determined that their way is the way to go. You're going to have to be teachable if God's going to be able to teach you. So he goes on in verse 24. He says, because I have called, and here's wisdom, or here's the word of God, because I have called and you have refused, I have stretched out my hand and no man regarded, but you have set at naught all my counsel. That means you treated the word of God like it wasn't worth anything. That must mean you considered something else more important. See, that's why putting the word of God first place in your life is such a key issue. Because you said it not all my counsel and would have none of my reproof or instruction or correction, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your fear comes. Notice it didn't say if it comes, it says when it comes. Folks, trouble is coming to everybody. Life's full of trouble. And just being saved and just being a a believer and and being filled with the Holy Ghost and, and knowing what the blessings of God are don't save you from trouble in life. Anybody that thinks that the walk of faith means you'll never have any trouble has sadly missed the boat. No, in fact, you're probably going to have a little bit more trouble because you are putting the word first in, in your life. But that's not a problem if you know that the word puts you over no matter what comes against you. So he says, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your fear comes. When your fear comes as desolation and your destruction comes as a whirlwind. Notice again, it's when, not if. When your fear comes as desolation and your destruction comes as a whirlwind, when distress and anguish comes upon you, then shall they call upon me. Who shall call upon me? The ones that despise his reproof and counted the word of God as as, uh, a lesser thing earlier. Then shall they call upon me, but I will not answer. They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me. Folks, the time to get wisdom is before you need it. The time to put the Word of God to work in your life is before you get in a crisis. Now, the Word of, the word of God will still work in a crisis. And I've seen a lot of times, and I've even been in this situation myself, where, where through my stupidity, I didn't put the Word first, wound, in, wound up in trouble and called unto God. And because my heart was right, it wasn't something I was trying to rebel against to begin with. Because my heart was right, God used the Word or showed me the Word to help me out of my problem. But that's not the best way to go. Boy, wouldn't it be great if you could teach your children this? That's exactly what God's trying to do with you and me. He's trying to teach his children this. Then shall they call upon me, but I will not answer. They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me for or because that they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. Well, that must mean they chose something else instead. They would have none of my counsel. They despised all my reproof. Therefore... Shall they eat the fruit of their own way and be filled with their own devices? I don't know about you, but that is one of the scariest propositions in life for me. At least it used to be before I made the word of God important in my life. Verse 32, for the turning away of the simple shall slay them. You know what the turning away of the simple means? It says the ease of the simple in the margin of my Bible. It literally means the path of least resistance. Taking the easy way. 
For the turning away of the simple shall slay them, and the prosperity of fools shall destroy them. But, thank God, here's the good news. But whoso hearkeneth unto me shall dwell safely and shall be quiet from fear of evil. Doesn't mean you won't have trouble, but it means you don't have to be afraid of it. Because there's no trouble that the devil's got that can overcome the word of God when it's put into work and practice. Now turn with me over to Matthew chapter 7. Let me show you how this is a New Testament, or there is a New Testament correlation to this. Same thing that Jesus said, he just said it a little different way. Matthew chapter 7. Beginning in verse 24. Jesus said, we know it's Jesus because the words are in red. Okay, that's a joke, but if you have to tell people, it's a bad one. Okay, therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them. Talking about being a doer of the word. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings and doeth them. I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. Notice here Jesus is saying a wise person is somebody that hears and does the word. Well, that would make wisdom the word of God then, wouldn't it? I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock and the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell not for it was founded upon a rock. Notice he did not say wise men, people that put the word of God in practice never have to worry about the wind or the rain or the floods. Sounds like trouble to me, doesn't it to you? But it says when those troubles come, they don't overtake him because he's built his house upon the rock of the word. But... Here's the contrast, verse 26. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Notice the same storms came to both. The only difference in the two was one stood and the other fell. The word will keep you standing, folks. The word will keep you through whatever storms of life come. Through whatever adversities, whatever problems, whatever trouble that comes, the Word of God will see you through. That's why you don't have to be afraid of the troubles of life. Nothing to fear. The devil doesn't have anything that can take you under if you're built on the Word. That's why the Word of God is such a key issue when it comes to developing in spirit. Because apart from the Word, without the Word, there is no success. There is no way to stand or withstand the storms of life or the tests that come. Your only hope is the Word of God. That's why the Word of God has to be foremost in your life. The Bible says the fear of the the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In other words, putting the Word of God first is the start to wisdom. The Word of God is key. Now, this morning, like I said, I want to go in a little different direction because I want to talk to you about guidance through uh, prophecies, visions, and dreams. And that always becomes a big issue with charismatic folks. Oh, I got this prophecy. Uh, Somebody told me this. Somebody told me that. I had a dream. Pastor Mike, what does my dream mean? Folks, I have no idea what your dreams ever mean. You're wasting your time coming to ask me. My first thought is you ate too late. Now, there are times. When, when things occur, I, I, as a matter of fact, earlier this week, and I, I don't think this is coincidental. I think it had to do with, with ministering along this line this week as the Lord directed me to. I had a dream that was directly in line with something I was already believing God for. Well, it encouraged me. I woke up, and man, I felt I had such a great day. 
because it was something that was in line with what I was already believing God for. The dream was that coming to pass. Well, that that confirms the word. That's exactly what the word says to do. It says keep the word before your eyes. In other words, see yourself with the thing you're believing God for. See yourself with what the word says. So it encouraged me. There's no problem with that. But anytime you have to try to figure out what a dream means, that can't be God. Why? Because God doesn't lead you through your ability to figure things out. He leads you through your spirit. And your spirit knows things. It doesn't wonder things. It doesn't guess at things. It doesn't reason things. Your spirit knows. Jesus said, my sheep hear and know my voice. So if you have a dream and don't know what it means, it's not God. Because he doesn't lead you through what you don't know. He only leads you through what you do know. He only leads you through what is witnessed or is confirmed or is solidified in your spirit. I woke up and knew exactly what it means. It meant God was encouraging me. Now, does it mean it's coming to pass by the end of the week? Well, it's the end of the week and it hadn't happened yet. But what does it mean? As far as I'm concerned, it's just God saying you're on the right track. Well, that's enough for me. Now, what if I'd had a dream where it showed that I didn't get it? What I was believing for. What if it showed me failing to receive? Well, is that God? Can't be. It doesn't line up with the word. Now, turn with me over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, where prophecy is concerned. And we've talked a little bit about prophecy. We talked last week. And if you weren't here last week, I'd really encourage you to get the uh, the message because it kind of completes some of the things that we'll say today and, and, and the rest of the series. But we saw how Paul... In Acts chapter 19 and verse 21, at the, at the height of his ministry success, he was in the city of Ephesus. He was having the greatest revival or move of God or ministry results of anywhere that he had throughout the, the, the whole of his ministry that we have record of. He was in a place for three and a half years, and in two of those years, uh, the, the, the outreach to all of Asia was, uh, was accomplished. All of Asia heard the word from that one place. It was just a tremendous result. Special miracles and signs and wonders were being done by the hands of Paul and so forth. And Acts chapter 19, verse 21 says, right in the middle of that, it says, the Spirit moved Paul to plan to go to Jerusalem and then to Rome. King James says, Paul purposed in the Spirit. Another translation says, the Spirit moved Paul to plan. I like that. The Spirit moved Paul to plan. Well, there were people that started trying to talk him out of it because of the trouble that was waiting for him and the the difficulties that were ahead. And Paul wouldn't allow it. Paul would not be talked out of it over and over and over again. As a matter of fact, there's not one person that we have record of that stood on Paul's side and said, you know, I think this is God. We've got a prophet Agabus that came down and he declared to Paul and the other people that were there, about the trouble that was waiting for him in Jerusalem. They're going to put you in chains in Jerusalem. Well, Paul already knew that. The Holy Ghost had witnessed that to him everywhere he'd gone. He already knew that, but he didn't let that talk him out of it. He had what was in his spirit as the number one source for what he knew God wanted him to do. And folks, nobody's ever going to know what God wants you to do more than you're going to know what God wants you to do. I never have been able to understand people putting their 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 future in the hands of other people and what they think. I haven't understood that. I never could understand that. Now, one thing about Paul, and it may be a part of his personality, Galatians chapter 1, about verse 16, somewhere around there, Paul said, when the Lord called me and revealed to me that I was to preach, he said, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. So it seems that Paul's personality was such that he's not looking for other people to give him direction anyway. He didn't say I didn't. He said specifically that I didn't go talk to anybody about it. I didn't go to, to Jerusalem to the other apostles to see what they thought. And that would have been the first place a lot of Christians would run. 
Let's go find out what pastor so-and-so thinks. Let's find out what minister so-and-so thinks. Let's find out what other believers think. And they'll even use scriptures in the multitude of counsel, their safety. They'll even use scriptures to try to talk themselves out of following the Lord on the inside. Folks, in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. But if you don't already know what God wants you to do, what are you counseling with or about? So Paul wouldn't talk to anybody about it. He knew that he knew that he knew. Jesus telling him was enough for him. Should be for all of us. So he wouldn't be he wouldn't be dissuaded. He wouldn't be talked out of it. As a matter of fact, the Bible says in Acts chapter 21, when they all tried to persuade Paul not to go, Paul persuaded them. They stopped. They ceased saying the will of the Lord be done. In other words, Paul convinced them of what the will of God was rather than the other way around. Just because of what he had on the inside. Now, in first Corinthians, the first Thessalonians chapter five, apparently this prophecy thing has been misused to a great degree. Because notice what Paul says in his closing statements to the church in the first letter that he wrote to him. He writes to them, uh, let's start in verse 16. He says, rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. You ought to do twice as much praising God as you do praying. If this pattern holds true. Rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Then he gives some other instruction. He says, quench not the spirit. Well, you must be able to quench the spirit then. Despise not prophesying. Now, I think specifically these two things go together. I think we'd be better served if these two things were in part of one verse. Because I think specifically he's telling the Corinthians, the, uh, what's their names? The Thessalonians. I think specifically he's telling them, don't quench the spirit by despising prophesying. Now, what would make somebody despise prophecies? Only thing I can think of is if it's overused. Now, church historical records tell us that that was the case in Thessalonica. This was a prophesying bunch. Everybody had a prophecy. You know what I found? It's an interesting thing. The Bible says, Paul writing to the church says, you may all prophesy one by one. In other words, God can use everybody in the simple gift of prophecy. There's a difference between prophecy and being a prophet. The simple gift of prophecy has no revelation. It has no foretelling to it. It's just speaking unto men to edification, exhortation, and comfort. You're encouraging someone. You're speaking either something that God gives you to say or a scripture that God brings to mind or something for the benefit of the, of the person that's, that you're speaking to, the benefit of the hearer. And, and that can be a great thing. But what I've found a lot of times is that people will be used by the Lord to give somebody a simple word of encouragement, something simple, something that, that might be a blessing to them. And then they find out, maybe, maybe you tell that to somebody and, and they say, wow, that really blesses me. I really appreciate that. And then all of a sudden that person gets happy and then a bunch of stuff starts coming out and none of that's God. One of the biggest things I have to guard against is to make sure I say only what God tells me to say. Because it's real easy to go beyond what God says. Real easy. It's real easy to go beyond what God says in, in what he speaks to your heart. You can put your own interpretation on things and go way beyond what he ever said originally. God's got a start and a stop button. I think a lot of people find his start button, but they never do discover that he has a stop button. Well, apparently that's what's going on here in, in uh, Thessalonica. 
He says, don't quench the spirit by despising prophesying. In other words, you can get take such a dim view of prophesying that I have to work on this, folks. I really have to work on this because personal prophecies, in my experience, are wrong about 99% of the time. And so much of the time, I'm trying to fix something what some personal prophecy created in somebody's life. And so in, in that context, I have to be careful that I don't take a dim view of personal prophecies because I know God does use people. I know God can use anybody. But it's so easy for somebody to get left up, lifted up in pride because God uses them to tell somebody something. And then they start getting off track. So he says, despise not prophesying, don't quench the spirit. In other words, always stay open to whatever God might want to say in any way God might want to say it. Amen? But right on the other hand, if personal prophecy doesn't confirm something you've already got, you can know for sure that God's not going to use it to lead you or to guide you. Why? Because the number one way God leads you is by the inward witness. He's not going to tell you through somebody else something that contradicts what you've already got in your own heart. That's what happened in Paul's ministry. People were telling Paul something that was the exact opposite of what he knew in his heart about going to Jerusalem and Rome. And he wouldn't allow it to take him off track. We should have the same determination of spirit to hold steady to what we know too. But you've got to be acquainted with the inward witness. You've got to know the voice of God on the inside in order to have that stability. Now, here's the thing that I want you to see about this. The people that are most often misled by prophecies are those that are laced, grounded in the word. Beth and I were talking about this a little bit yesterday. Um, it's We don't hear too much. In, we don't hear any of it in our church. But in, uh, in times past, it used to be that people would speak out by the word of the Lord about how much God loves you. Well... Stop and think about that. Who is going to really be affected by hearing someone else say God loves you? In my opinion, it's going to be somebody that's unskilled in the word. Because you can't be skilled in the word to any degree without knowing how much God loves you. That's the thing that the Bible's about. I love you and then here's the proof. I gave you Jesus. I gave you the blessings that, that he accomplished through the cross and so forth. So this idea that thus saith the Lord, I love you with a great love. Who's really going to be affected by that? Only the, the least experienced believer. I don't need somebody to prophesy to know that God loves me. I've got Jesus living on the inside of me that proves that. Don't you? So what are we to do? Notice he said, quench not the spirit, despise not prophesying. He goes on, I think he's still talking about prophecies in verse 20 uh, or verse 21. He says, prove all things. In other words, judge what you hear. That's the only way that you're going to be able to, to encounter the multitude of people saying things, many, much of it be wrong, and be able to tell the difference between what's wrong and what's right. He says, judge all things or prove all things and hold fast to that which is good. Well, what do you do with that which is not good? Throw it out. Ignore it. But you've got to know the word of God to be able to judge it. I'll remind you in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, Paul talks about the natural man not being able to receive the things of the Spirit of God. Verse 15, he said, he that is spiritual judges all things. He doesn't say he judges all people. He says he judges all things. So if you're going to be spiritual, if you're going to grow in the things of God, you're going to have to know the Word of God enough to be able to judge whether or not somebody's telling you the right thing or the wrong thing. And, folks, that doesn't just apply to prophecies. That should apply to preaching. Don't take my word for it just because I'm saying it. You may think I'm a great guy. You may think I'm, uh, you know, whatever. Well, I ought to qualify that, I guess. 
But don't take anybody's word for anything. Check it out for yourself. See what the Bible says. If I'm not telling you something that lines up with the truth of the word, throw out what I'm saying. And that's what the Bible's talking about. He that is spiritual judges all things. He that is spiritual knows the word of God enough to know that he can prove all things. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to have to know the Bible from, from front to back. But it means you know that the Bible is the source of the information so you can go find out what you don't know. Amen? So prove all things. Hold fast to that which is good. If, if Christians would just simply take that one principle, let's judge this according to the word, but they don't. They judge it according to their feelings. They judge it according to their flesh. They may get excited about what somebody says, so they say, yeah, that's got to be right. Well, why? Because you got excited? Folks, I get excited about a lot of things that aren't right. You can watch a movie and get excited. Doesn't mean what you're seeing is right. Sometimes people get excited or people get moved by the things that they want to hear. Oh, God's got a great blessing for you. You go back in the, in the Old Testament when Israel was taken captive in Babylon. Most of the prophets were prophesying, oh, God's going to deliver you. Don't you worry. God's going to get you out of here. God told Jeremiah to tell those false prophets that the judgment of God was upon them. And then God told Jeremiah to say, stay where you are. Quit trying to rebel against these people. God will try to, God will bless you where you are, but it's 70 years of captivity before you're coming out. Well, nobody wanted to hear that. They wanted to kill Jeremiah. Let's kill the messenger. That'll change things. So a lot of times people get moved by what they want to hear. God doesn't always tell you what you want to hear, but he'll always tell you the truth. Amen. Now, let's talk about visions a little bit. I don't want to take a lot of time on prophecies or or dreams. Really, those basic principles should be enough to get you through on those. Let's talk about visions for a little bit. Turn back with me to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9 tells us about Paul's experience. On the road to Damascus. We'll start reading in verse 1. It says, And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went into the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, meaning any Christians, whether they be men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. Verse 7. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. Now, in Acts chapter 22, Paul, recounting the story himself, says that everybody saw the light, but they didn't hear the voice. And some people will say, well, see, you've got contradictions in the Bible. It's not a contradiction, folks. It simply means this. Everybody there saw the light. Paul was the only one that fell off of uh, the donkey he was riding. But everybody there in the group that was traveling together saw the light. Now, the guys heard a sound, but they couldn't distinguish that it was a voice. That's all it means. They heard a sound, but they didn't hear the voice. Only Paul heard the voice. To the rest of the guys, it was just a sound from heaven and it was indistinguishable. And you can see it wasn't a long conversation, so it wasn't something that lasted a long time. But Paul was the only one that heard the voice speaking to him. So what happened? Well, I, um, let me, let me identify the different things about the Bible concerning visions. Brother Hagen, uh, 
taught us that there were three different kinds of visions. Now, you can see that clearly from the Bible, and he's the only one that I know of. I don't know if he originated or not. He's the first one I heard anything from. He's the only one that, uh, that gave names to the different types of visions or the different kinds of visions. And, and he didn't do it because it's some scriptural title or something like that. He just did it for the purpose of, of distinguishing one thing from another. The first type of vision he talked about was a, a spiritual vision. The second type was a trance. We'll see an example of that over in Acts chapter 10. And the third type is an open vision. And an open vision is where uh, there's a manifestation of spiritual things in the natural realm so that you can see them with your natural eye. Well, this is a spiritual vision for Paul because you'll notice there were two things that took place. First of all, there was a manifestation, an outward manifestation of light and sound. Everybody heard that. But only Paul was able to distinguish what the sound was. Only Paul had the spiritual vision where Jesus was talking to him and giving him instruction. Now, notice in the next verse, we stopped with verse uh, 7, I guess. Notice it says in verse 8, it says, And Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man. Well, that must mean that his eyes were closed during this vision. Now, spiritual vision is with your eyes closed. You're seeing something in the spirit from within. Now, spiritual vision is very, very similar to, it's a little bit higher, but it's very similar to an inward revelation. How many of you have ever been reading a, the scripture and all of a sudden you see something on the, on the page that was there all the time, but all of a sudden your eyes are open to it and it's like, wow, I never saw that before. Ever had that kind of experience? Okay. Well, that's a revelation. That's an inward revelation. A spiritual vision is maybe one step above that because in this case, it's your eyes open. It's your spirit making contact with the spirit realm. In this case, it was the voice of Jesus speaking to Paul, whose name was Saul then, before God changed his name to Paul, speaking to him and telling him what to do. Now, this was obviously revelation. It was obviously guidance. The guidance was go into the city and I'll tell you what to do there. But the revelation that Jesus is alive turns Paul's whole apple cart upside down because he's going to, to Damascus for the purpose of killing people that say Jesus is alive. We know of Paul's uh, statements about himself, that he's a, a Hebrew among the Hebrews. He's on the fast track of the, the priesthood and that kind of stuff. I mean, he is, he is, you know, the golden boy. Everybody's looking at him as the up-and-comer guy. Well, what's he doing? He's fighting against this thing that says that, that Judaism is, is defunct. He's fighting against this idea that Jesus is the Messiah and has been raised from the dead. If Jesus is the Messiah and has been raised from the dead, then there is no such thing as the priesthood anymore because the promise has come. So he's fighting against that doctrine. Well, it's hard to fight against a doctrine when Jesus appears to you and knocks you off your animal and says, it's me. Paul is instantly convinced that Jesus is alive. Wouldn't you agree? He asked, he said, who art thou, Lord? Jesus' first statement was, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Paul knows whoever this is, it's Lord. I mean, you're stronger than me. Obviously, this is a heavenly occurrence. Who art thou, Lord? And Jesus said, it is Jesus whom thou persecutest. No question about him being alive then, is there? Paul is instantly convinced. Now, I don't know about you, but I didn't get saved that way. I missed the light, the, the donkey, the, the whole thing. I got saved in a different way. But Paul is convinced immediately. Now, what does the Bible say? The Bible says, Paul tells us in his own writings to the, to the Romans, he says in Romans chapter 10, he says the key to getting saved is two things. Number one, to believe that God has raised Jesus from the dead. In other words, to believe Jesus is alive. And number two, to confess Jesus is Lord. He says, who art thou, Lord? 
This is Paul's conversion experience, salvation experience. He said, I'm Jesus whom you persecute. And then he says, you're stupid for fighting against me. That's my translation of it's hard for, to, for thee to kick against the pricks. He's saying, you're wasting your time fighting against me. And then he says, Lord, what would you have me do? So after he knows his Jesus, he's calling him Lord. Paul is now saved. Now, the revelation is, number one, that Jesus is alive. The direction, the guidance is, number two, go into the city. And I'll tell you what to do there. And notice all this happened with Paul's eyes closed. Everybody else's eyes must be opened. The light didn't blind them like it did Paul. They heard a sound, but they couldn't distinguish that it was a voice. They didn't know what it was. Maybe they thought it was thunder. Maybe they thought it was something something else. I don't know. But they couldn't distinguish that it was a voice. Only Paul knew that. So all they're aware of is that, wow, there's some special light and some sound that happened. We didn't know what Paul was doing. They must have heard Paul speak. Who art thou, Lord? He's talking to somebody. We don't know who he's talking to. Then he makes his way into Damascus. Three days later, Ananias comes in, lays hands on him, and receives his sight. You know the story. So spiritual visions can take place with your eyes closed. You can have a spiritual vision while you're praying. These can be common occurrences. But God does not always use those to give you guidance. And even even if he does use them to give you guidance, they'll always be in line with something you've already got in your heart. Why? Because the number one way God leads you is by the inward witness. That means nothing God ever does will violate the inward witness that you've got from him. Nothing. Now turn with me over to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10 tells us about uh, Cornelius seeing an angel, having a, having a vision. Verse 3, he said, he saw in a vision evidently about the ninth hour of the day an angel coming into him and saying unto him, Cornelius. Now, does that mean his eyes were open or closed? We don't know. But the fact that the Bible says that he had a vision indicates to me that it was with his eyes closed. It, otherwise, it would have said, and an angel came into his room or something to that effect. Now, that, is that proof? No, but it's an indication to me. You judge it for yourself, determine it any way you want to. But then notice what happens with with Peter a little bit later. It says in verse 9, On the morrow as they from Cornelius' house went on their journey and drew nigh into the city, Peter went up onto the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. And he became very hungry and would have eaten, but while they made ready, he fell into a trance. Notice that phrase, he fell into a trance. It doesn't say that he prayed and, and had a spiritual vision. It says he fell into a trance. Now, one translation says he fell over bodily. A trance can be described, and again, this, these are Brother Hagin's descriptions. You can agree with them, disagree with them, or whatever you want to do. It doesn't matter to me. It doesn't change the truth of the word one way or the other. It just helps me categorize things. A trance is where your physical senses are suspended. There are uh, uh, examples of uh, uh, or experiences that uh, a certain lady had in the, in the, I think she ministered during the 1800s, uh, Maria Woodworth Etter. She's got a book, a great big old thick book called Signs and Wonders that uh, I guess is still in print. I haven't seen it in a long time, but I guess it's still in print. And uh, on the cover of her book or the inside cover of her book, it shows her standing like a statue. Well, she would fall into these trances sometimes during the middle of her services and stay as long as three days in one position. And it became a sign to the whole city. People would come out and they would they would look. And uh, I mean, I don't know how you run a campaign with the preacher standing there like a statue 
you know, for three days running. But people would come to try to pull her arm down. Men would try to pull her arm down, pip them up and that kind of stuff. Couldn't budge her, couldn't make a move. She'd come out of this trance in the mid, middle of the sentence that she was in when she went into it. Well, what happened for three days? There were no bodily functions. Her bodily functions were suspended for three days. There was no evidence that she was breathing. That she wasn't going to the bathroom. She wasn't eating. She was standing like a statue for three days. Now, folks, i got to tell you, I'm really glad God doesn't use me like that. <laughs> but you can well understand what a sign that would be to a city. Here's somebody preaching about Jesus, and all of a sudden, statue. And ever, like I said, it wasn't something, you know, they'd have people that would watch over her and, and, you know, attend to her for all the time that they were there. Her, her crew would be on shifts if something like that would happen. But people would come by and they'd poke her, you know, try to get her to move. You know how they do in the, the guys in, in, uh, Great Britain outside of, uh, Buckingham Castle. The guards, they try to make people, make faces at them, stuff like that. Well, I guess people are doing the same thing to her. And so apparently that's what, that's what this trance is like. Peter fell into a trance. Now, in that trance, he had a vision. It says that he saw this sheet coming down with all kinds of animals. But it tells us that at the end of that, he thought on what it meant. He didn't get any any guidance or direction from this, this trance or from the vision that he had while he was in the trance. It was only after that that the Lord said to him, three men seek you, go with them doubting nothing. That's in verse 19. While Peter thought on the vision. Well, as he came back to himself as far as the trance is concerned. But it says, while he thought on the vision. So he didn't know what it meant, did he? So God's not leading him by the vision. Because if he was leading him by the vision, Paul would have come out of the trance and saying, I now know what God wants. But he didn't. While he thought on the vision, the Spirit said, Three men seek thee, arise, go with them, get thee down, and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. Now, the Lord told me this week when I was praying and walking, the Lord told me to uh, to share with you my experiences, and um, I don't want to do that. I'm sorry, I just don't. Um, I, I, I'm going to, I have to, but um, but I'm having a problem with that. Uh, Paul said in writing the Corinthians chapter two, verse three, four, somewhere around there, he said, uh, "And I was with you in fear and weakness and much trembling." Well, that's how I feel because I don't want to tell you this. I've never spoken these words out loud. Never thought I would. But here we go. And and you, you bear with me about this because uh, the things that I'm going to tell you are things that are in my heart. They're not in my head. And so in order to tell you, I've got to get them from my heart, process them through my mind so that I can speak them out. So I want to, I want to be careful. I want to get these things exactly right because it was very precise and very exact with me. In, uh, in March, the early part of March uh, 1986, we started the church in January of 1986, I was uh, preaching. We were meeting. The church was meeting in Castile Elementary uh, over in Mission Viejo. And there was a, a little auditorium there that we had. And I don't know, there may have been 25, 30 people, maybe, probably not, but maybe. And, uh, and I'm preaching on you can have what you say. I'm preaching on the subject of faith. And uh, in the middle of that uh, that service, there was a little platform that they used as a, as a stage but we weren't on the stage. I was down on the floor, and so the platform was kind of up behind me. It was about three feet tall, something like that, a little ledge there. And um, so I'm preaching, minding my own business, just teaching on faith. And uh, and I sensed that something was happening. Well, I didn't know what it was, never had an experience like this before. I didn't know what it was, so I just kind of pushed through it. My first thought is, I'm going to faint. But then I thought, 
I'm not going to faint. This isn't about fainting. What is this? I'm looking around, and the next thing I know, everything gets fuzzy, and, and I'm standing there with Jesus. And um, Jesus is about, oh, I don't know, what is this, three feet away, two and a half feet, three feet away, something like that, as far as I am from the speaker. We're standing face to face. And uh, and Jesus started off conversation. He said, uh, uh, he told me some things. This part I'm not going to share with you. This is not important. But he told me about some things that I had done that uh, that were uh, appropriate and right in following him out to, to start the church and things like that. He commended me on some things, kind of patted me on the back, not physically, but uh, but with his words. And so he commended me on some things. And then all of a sudden it changed. He started telling me some things that I did wrong. And it changed from a conversational tone to him making specific direct statements. And, uh, and he said four things. There were four sentences that he said to me. And there were three times during that that at the end of those statements, it was like the cracking of a whip. At least that's the way it seemed to me. Um, I never have, I never have had a problem with people, uh, with people's idea about the chastisement of the Lord. I know what the chastisement of the Lord is. It's when God corrects you by His Word. Listen, folks, I'd rather have a physical beating than some things I've been chastised about. God always corrects you and instructs you and chastises you, disciplines you through the word. That's the only way he does it, not through circumstance, not through, through difficulties or adversities. I've never had a problem, especially since this experience, I've never had a problem understanding that. Now, I'm going to have to back up and give you some background so that you'll understand what uh, what was the importance of what was said. Uh, church was about three months old. And uh, and I don't know if you remember back in 1986 or not, but that was when the seeker-sensitive churches were blowing and going. I mean, every seeker-sensitive church, the only churches that were successful in the world were seeker-sensitive churches. At least that's the reports you'd get. And everybody's story was, uh, it wasn't enough for churches to say, this is what's working for us. No, they're trying to change everybody else's church. This is what your church needs to be. This is what your church needs to be. Well, it just so happened that I, that I had been bombarded with some of this for about three weeks and had some of my friends in ministry that had, were making some changes in their churches going that way. And so I was considering making some changes. Now, the the, the things that were being said, and I, I'm, this is not a criticism. I don't know what anybody says now or anything else. I'm just telling you what things were like then. The The statements that were being made then were, that if you're going to draw a crowd, if you're going to get people interested in what you have to say, there are certain things that you cannot say because it offends them. Number one, you can't talk about the blood of Jesus. That sounds cannibalistic. You can't talk about the cross. That sounds barbaric. And there were some other things as well, but the cross and the blood were really the big things. Can't talk about the blood of Jesus. Can't talk about the cross. Well, my thinking, my first thought was, then what are you having church for? I mean, without the cross and the blood... What are we doing? You know? But like I said, I happen to have been bombarded with this stuff in a variety of different ways. And some of my other, other acquaintances, ministry acquaintances were saying, yeah, I'm, we're making this change or have made this change. And boy, it's made a big difference in our church and this, that, and the other. And I'm just, I just kind of got swamped. And so I began thinking, well, okay, maybe, maybe we do need to change some things. And maybe, maybe there are some adjustments we need to make and, you know, that kind of stuff. And um, so anyway. This uh, Sunday morning service comes along. I'm standing before Jesus. He's, he's commended me on some things. And then all of a sudden it changed. The tone of his voice changed. The cadence of what he said changed. It became a real direct bang, bang, bang type thing. And uh, 
Lord, are you sure about this? I, I've never, I, I've never spoken these words out loud. Um, yeah, okay. So then he said, uh, when things changed, then he said this. He said, uh, you are thinking about making changes to my church. Well, lesson number one, it's his church, not mine to make changes. And he said this. Then he smiled. Oh, I was glad to see that smile. He kind of smiled and he said, there will always be those who will influence you to change and adapt the ministry that I've given you. And then he got real stern and he said, it is not to be changed. Then the third thing he said, or the, the fourth statement, but the third thing that he said. He said this. He said, don't even think about retreating from my gospel. Now, when he said that, like I said, we're standing about two and a half, three feet. I I don't know. I'm not good at distances. I guess this is two and a half, three feet away. He kind of leaned over. And and I don't know how to describe what he did, but he tilted his head at me. And it was almost like he looked narrowly at me. That's the only description I know how to give you. It's it's almost like he squinted, but his eyes it's like his eyes bored a hole in me. He said, don't even think about retreating from my gospel. And the next thing I knew, I'm laying face down on the carpet in Castile Elementary with a bunch of people who are in the church gathered around me praying for my healing. Now, I learned some real important lessons that day, and I learned them three months into our church. In, uh, in about another week, it'll be 27 years ago. And I learned some real important lessons. I have never since that time considered making changes to what we preach or even the way that we preach it. Now, I have found along the way that there are those that will try to influence me to change. I've had people say things like, you need to adopt another church's program. Well, that shifts them over into that group where Jesus said that they would be people that would try to influence me. And, and in my mind, it's the funniest thing because in my mind, it's like Jesus is still standing there. It's like there's always this squeaking voice when they move over. It's like, Ee-e-e-e. I've had people say, Pastor Mike, what our church needs to do is go to Mexico and start building houses. Ee-e-e-e. Now, does this mean that, that people are, 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 are uh, bad people for trying to make suggestions? No. They may be sincere in what they're doing, but they don't know what spirit they're of. Because what may seem like an innocent thing to them could change everything about the direction God gives you. I had one guy tell me, well, Mike, if you, if you want your church to grow, what you need to do is give out water bottles with your church name imprinted on them. Well, that's just stupid. That doesn't even rate a squeak, you know. But then I've had people say through the years that they didn't like what I have to say about the Jews or the Muslims or any other religion. And it all comes down to people being offended at what they at what they think. Offended concerning what they think and how they think things should be. Now, folks, the Bible's real clear on that in Romans chapter 14 and verse 4. It says, Who art thou to judge another man's servant? Before his own master he'll stand or fall. I, I've I've 
that has helped me a great deal. That, that experience that I had is probably the most significant experience that I ever had because it's made a difference in me because I am not trying to make anybody happy. Good thing, huh? That freed me completely from trying to make people happy because I was listening to what other people thought we should do. I haven't listened to anybody else about what we think, what they think we should do. That's a different thing entirely for somebody to say, now, if I was pastoring, I'd do things differently. That's totally different from saying this guy's doing it wrong. Because in that case, all that's left is for God to use the smart guy to start a church. Now, surely God would be smart enough to use smart people to start churches, wouldn't he? And of course, you understand that anybody can start a church. Pastoring has got to be the easiest job in the world. That's why everybody knows how to do it. Right? Does everybody know how to do your job? You can't find another job on the planet that everybody thinks they know how to do like it is ministry. Nothing. The question is, are we doing things, what, are we doing what God wants us to do and the way God wants them done? Now, God's given us all individual and specific aspects or characteristics or unique qualities to what he's called us to do. You can have two people that are lawyers and they'll, they'll operate and, and practice law in different ways. You'll have two people that are mechanics. They may go about things in different ways. Now, it's the same pattern or the same work that they have to do in, in fixing a car or whatever it is they're a mechanic for, but they may go about it in different ways. Same thing where ministry is concerned. You can have two different churches with two different pastors that go about things completely different ways. You can have one guy that's an evangelist, another guy that's a teacher. You can have another guy. He may not be much of either one, but he's just a people guy. Well, which one's right? Whichever one God's called that person to do. And I realized instantly that I was allowing myself to be influenced in what other people thought to be influenced instead of recognizing the supernatural aspect of what God has called me to do and the power behind what he's called me to. And, folks, i got to tell you, that's why I wear a suit and tie on Sundays. Well, that's why I wear a suit and tie any time I preach, not just Sundays, but any time I preach, because I recognize the supernatural nature of the office that I stand in, and I recognize the supernatural power behind that office. Now, I don't tell you, you have to dress like me. I don't care how you dress, as long as you dress. But here's something else that people want to criticize you about. You'll have other ministers that say, well, you ought not to wear a tie. Well, why? I don't wear a tie for the people. I wear a tie because I'm representing the Lord. So what should things like that matter? Well, we ha- we're going to have a casual church. Really? Well, I want to have a Jesus church. Now, the best way I can have a Jesus church is to dress the way I dress. I don't feel right. I've tried wearing open collars and stuff like that. I just, ne- every time I try it, I just never feel right. I feel unclothed when I'm preaching. That's not a pretty picture, folks. <laughs> but see, everybody's trying to fix somebody else. Well, why? What do you care? What does somebody else care? I had a conversation not too long ago with somebody. They didn't like what I said about the Jews. I asked them, I said, well, is what I said untrue? Well, no. Well, then what's the problem? Well, we're just uncomfortable with the way you say it. Well, dear Jesus, that changes everything. Because my whole purpose in life is to make you comfortable. 
Because that's what puts you over in life so far is your comfort level. Right? What about the third type of vision? Let's move on a little bit. What about the third type of vision? Third type of vision is open vision. Folks, the easiest example I can give you about this is Jesus appearing to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Jesus appeared in the middle of the room and said, handle me, touch me. An open vision is where spiritual things appear in the natural realm so that you can see them with your natural eye. Another example is Acts chapter 12 where it says Peter was put in prison and the next day he was going to be killed. The angel appears and has to kick him in the side to wake him up. Well, that was not a spiritual vision. As a physical kick and a physical side. So open visions are like that. Now, folks, open visions are, are interesting. The Lord told me to share with you something about this, too. I've told you about this one. This is not a big deal to me. But um, in uh, 1988 or 9, I guess, church had been going two or three years. Beth and I took a vacation. And uh, I might have the year wrong. But anyway, one of the first vacations we ever took, we went to Hawaii. Never been to Hawaii before. Had uh, some people in the, in the church recommend to us where to go, and they told us a real nice place. It was a real old Hawaii-type thing, the old plantation style, not the high-rise hotels or anything like that. Just wonderful. Oh, it was lovely. Well, about the third or fourth morning we were there, you know how rooms in Hawaii are set up. They've got the lanais, the outdoor patios and, or balconies and stuff like that. We had a real nice little lanai, and I'm laying on the bed that's uh, the side of the bed that's uh, closest to the, to, the, to the windows, the sliding doors and such, and... Um, I wake up, and as soon as I open my eyes, now I know I wasn't still asleep. I was conscious of being awake. As soon as I opened my eyes, there was an angel standing right there by the sliding glass door. Great big old fellow. Had a big brass, uh, golden-looking breastplate on. But it was almost like he was transparent, almost like you could see through it to, to, to him. It was, uh, like I said, great big old guy, not scary, but strong, really strong. And as soon as I opened my eyes, he looked at me and he said, I'm the angel of the church. He called the name of our church. And he started telling me some things about the church. I didn't say a word. I'm just laying there, minding my own business. He gave me some instruction, not direction, but instruction. And then after a few seconds, he disappeared. It wasn't, I don't guess it lasted any more than maybe 45, 50 seconds, something like that. Well, we had such a wonderful time on that vacation, that being part of it. It, it it revitalized me. I came back refreshed and just ready to go again. Well, the next year came around. We wanted to go back to Hawaii. And and we've tried this a couple of different times, and it never works. You ever tried to duplicate something? You had such a good time doing it. You tried to make it work again, and it doesn't work right, you know. Well, that was how we did it again. The second time we went, went to the same room, same hotel, tried to make everything exactly the same, and didn't really work. Although, the second year... About midway into the week, I open my eyes in the morning, and there's the angel. Now, I don't know why he only shows up in Hawaii. I've always used that as instruction for me to go every year. God seems to like me being there. Or at least I'm going to tell myself that. But anyway, this time he shows up. Same guy, I mean, looking exactly the same, same position, same everything. And then he starts giving me instruction about my personal life. Now, this time, I don't know why I did it. I wasn't really thinking about it. But this time, I sat up in bed and I said, wait a minute. You're the angel of the church. What are you talking to me about for, talking about my personal life for? Now, looking back on that, why in the world would I ask a question like that? Why wouldn't I just be glad for what I'm hearing? I don't know. I didn't think it through. It's just something that came out. I said, what are you talking to me about my personal life? 
And he smiled. He got this great big old grin, great big old fellow, got this great big old grin on his face. And he said, as long as you are faithful to the ministry which you have been given, I will protect you and your family. I am sent to protect you and your family just as I am the church. Woo-hoo! I've thought about that through the years different times where people have done things against the church and done things against my family. I even told one person they pronounced a curse on us and, and all this kind of stuff. And I, I even told one person, I said, you don't know who you're messing with. They thought I was talking about me. I'm talking about that great big old guy right back here. You don't know who you're messing with. Now, that was an open vision because I saw it with my physical eyes. I spoke with my physical voice. I'm seeing something in, from the spirit realm as if it's in the natural realm. Now, Paul talked about this. Paul talked about entertaining strangers, and some people have entertained angels unawares. Well, how could that be anything other than an angel appearing as a man or as a human being? Right? So open visions happen as well. But in every case, every example that I could give you, every example I could show you from the Word, none of these things are direction apart from the Word of God or what God has already directed somebody to in the first place. Peter was smitten by the angel, kicked in the side by the angel, and said, go get out of the prison. I'll show you the, the doors that are open. Go get out of the prison and stand in the middle of the square and preach these words of life. In other words, go back to preaching. He didn't tell him to start something new. He said, go continue what you know to do already. And that's the way that visions are. And, and visions are never anything. We never have any indication from Scripture that we should ever seek for a vision, that we should ever look for something like this. These are things that happen as the Spirit wills. God's the one that's in control of it. And if it ever does happen, it's going to have to confirm what you already know from the truth of the Word. Now, what if the angel had told me to do something that the Bible doesn't talk about? What if he had told me to do something contrary to the Word? Well, I don't care if I am seeing an angel. I'm not going to follow an angel. Because the Word's the only thing that never passes away. The Word's the only sure and confident, the only sure and stable thing that we can have confidence in. Now, look with me over to, to uh, what is it, Second Corinthians chapter 11, I think it is. Let me show you something here. You get so many people, bless their hearts. You may know people. We run across people every now and then like this. People that are in dire straits because they've had some vision some many years ago. And as a result, it's just messed up their life. They're trying to make their life work according to their vision. And it just never works because it's contrary to the word. And this is where wrong doctrines come into the church. It'll start with a little bit of truth, but then it'll get off track and nobody judges it according to the word. And so therefore people follow the wrong path. Yeah, but I got a vision. Folks, the whole Mormon religion came as a vision. It came from a vision. Islam came from a vision. Supposedly some angel or God himself is spoken to Muhammad, and that's where we get the, the, the Islamic religion. Well, Paul talked about that. Before Muhammad ever had his thing, before Joseph Smith ever had his thing, Paul talked about that. And notice what he said. Let's start reading in verse... Uh, uh, well, chapter 11, he's talking about, um, uh, here's who I am. I've, I've committed myself to you and so forth. Um, where do we want to start reading? Let's, let's start in verse 10. Second Corinthians 11, verse 10. He said, as the truth of Christ is in me, no man shall stop me of this boasting in the regions of Achaia. Wherefore, why? Why is this? Because I don't love you? No, God knows what the truth is. 
He's being sarcastic. He's saying the reason that I'm doing all these things is because of my love for you. But what I do, verse 12, but what I do that I will do, that I may cut off occasion from them which desire occasions, that wherein they glory they may be found even as we. In other words, he's saying, I know people are out there making all kinds of claims. People are out there bragging on themselves, telling about what vision they've had or what vision uh, they've, uh, what message they've heard and all this other kind of stuff. He says, I know there are all kinds of people out there doing that. And he said, I'm going to tell the truth so that it shows them to be who they really are. The truth always overcomes the, the false. Hey, verse 13, he said, for such are false a prophet, false apostles, excuse me, deceitful workers transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. In other words, he's saying just because somebody sounds good doesn't mean they are good. Just mean, just because somebody presents themselves as a minister or is knowing the truth of the word doesn't mean they're really preaching the truth. And he said in verse 14, here's what I want you to see, and no marvel. In other words, we shouldn't be surprised about the false apostles. No marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. Now, what does that mean? What does verse 14 mean? The the devil himself is transformed into an angel of light. Here's very simply what it means. Here's a paraphrase. Here's my interpretation of that. But you judge it and see if it's not true according to the scripture. It means simply this. It means to a lot of Christians, what the devil says and the devil does sounds and looks like God. Well, how are we going to keep from being taken in on something like that? There's only one way, folks, and that is to know the word. To judge what you hear and judge what you see according to the word. The Bible tells you to judge not only what you hear, it tells you to judge not only what you see, but it says to judge the fruit of the life of the person saying it. That's why there's such an instruction in the Bible about don't putting a, don't put a newbie, don't put a, no, a novice into office. Why? Because somebody needs to have a, a pattern of fruit, good fruit in their lives so that you know how to trust them. Now the Bible says this about deacons. Deacons are the effective, uh, are, are the, the, uh, the equivalent of ushers in our church. The Bible says before you pick an usher, let them be somebody that's proven themselves. And uh, one translation says in a variety of ministries. In a variety of applications. Let somebody be known to be solid, to be stable, to be honest, to be trustworthy. Let somebody be known of that in their life before you start putting them in even a lower office, even a lesser office. Well, if that's true of lesser offices, wouldn't it be true of ministry gifts? Or is God just saying, no, I'll prove the people that, that are doing things on a lower level, but the people on the top, just throw anybody in there. Seriously? Yet people want to swallow anything and everything they hear. Well, what's their life like? Brother Hagin used to talk about people in the in the healing revival days where people would come in. The big meetings were taking place everywhere. These folks would come in that have uh, churches in the in the local towns, uh, cooperate with the meetings and rent the meeting halls and stuff like this, with the understanding that the that the the proceeds, the offerings of the crusade, would be used to pay the expenses for the meetings. And a lot of these guys would go in there and take the offerings and leave town. Leave the churches holding the bag. Well, some of them were preaching the truth about Jesus. But should you follow somebody like that? Brother Hagin tells the story of one lady, lady pastor, who followed this guy around, walked up on the platform in the next town he was in, had a briefcase right there, and when they took the offering, she just opened the briefcase and said, just put it right in here. 
Guy started running over this and, no, 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 what's going on here? And she says, if you don't want me to tell everybody what you've done in the last three or four towns you've been to, you just put those offerings right in here and we'll pay for the things that happened in my town. Well, she walked away with those offerings. He didn't want anybody to find that out, see? Well, folks, just because somebody claims to be a minister, just because somebody claims to be speaking for God doesn't mean that what they're saying is right or that they're a right person. That's why you need to know those that labor among you. We need to know that in the church, and you need to know that about who you follow. I've always, it just amazes me. People come up and say, well, what about this person? I saw come across this person on the Internet. You do just a 30 seconds worth of checking up on that person and find out they're not even saved. Don't even claim to be saved. They've had some vision and some trip to heaven or something like that. Don't even claim to be saved, not even teaching about Jesus. Well, shouldn't we check things out? I mean, there should be no, in my opinion, there's never been a time where it's easier to check things out than it is today. You need to know people. You need to know what's going on. That's part of being spiritual. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We'll close with this. Let's, let me remind you of the scripture we referred to before. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. It says, but the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God. Now, he's not just talking about the unsaved. Certainly that's true of the unsaved, but you can be naturally minded as a Christian. We know that that was true in Ephesus. You remember the story in Ephesus? We looked at last week in Acts chapter 19. After all these great things have happened, then it says the seven sons of Siva tried to cast the devil out of that guy. The devil in him jumped on those guys, stripped them of their clothes, and they ran naked down the street. Then after people heard about that, they brought all their occult stuff that they were still dabbling with and mixing with Christianity. That's when they committed themselves to Christianity and the, the things of God first. Well, what are Christians doing mixing things up with other stuff anyway? That would be an example of a natural man or a naturally minded Christian. Folks, if Jesus is just one of many ways to God for you, you need to identify, number one, are you really saved? And number two, why do you think that the power of other things matches the power of Jesus? I don't see Islam doing any miracles. I don't see Judaism performing miracles, Buddhism, Confucianism, or anything else. I don't see any of them healing the sick. There's no evidence of power in any other religion. None whatsoever. Well, then how do these things rate equally in the minds of some people? Well, they shouldn't. So he said, but the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God. Why? Because they are foolishness unto him. What does that mean? That means he can't figure them out. That means in his thinking, it doesn't hold a place of importance. Well, God doesn't lead you through your thinking. For they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. That means they're not mentally discerned. That means they're not physically felt. The things of the Spirit of God are only understood from your heart. Well, how are you going to know what's right from your heart? There's only one way, and that's from the Word. Because the Word's the only thing that feeds your spirit. The Word's the only thing that fits your spirit. It's the only thing that develops your spirit. It's the only thing that causes you to know what's what spiritually. That's why the Word is such a key, folks. Don't ever put the Spirit first. It's the Word first and the Spirit second. That's the order that God established. Now notice verse 15. But he that is spiritual judges all things. Well, how many of you want to be spiritual? Well, the Bible's going to tell you what to do. He that is spiritual 
judges all things. That means he investigates all things. That means he proves all things and holds fast to that which is good. That means he's able to determine and discern the difference between that which is true according to the word and that which is contrary to the word. It means he's able to discern that which is true according to Bible principles and that which does not meet Bible standards. Now, folks, the unspiritual will condemn you for judging all things. You need to understand that. Natural Christians or natural men, people that aren't saved, will judge you or will condemn you for judging. For example, we can stand up and say, according to the Bible, homosexuality is wrong. People scream, you're judging. Well, I'm judging homosexuality to be a sin, according to the Scripture. Well, you're judging people. No, I'm not. Didn't say a word about people. Didn't say a word about people. Therefore, we can say with confidence, gay marriage is wrong. According to Bible standards. Well, you're just judging. You, I thought you Christians are supposed to be people that are walking in love. I do. And the Bible says, Jesus said, he that loves me. The one I'm interested in loving is God. Jesus said, he that loves me is he that keeps my commandments. That means the person that puts the word first. Well, putting the word first dictates that gay marriage is a sin. Now, one of my favorite phrases nowadays is to be on the right side of history. What in the heck does that mean? Well, we want to be on the right side of history. I don't. I want to be on the right side of the word. That's the only thing that matters to me. Now, I know know that doesn't matter to a lot of people. So when it comes to politics, when it comes to anything, when it comes to any area of life, I've got one simple judge, and that's the Bible. What does the Bible say about it? Pure and simple. I've got a Christian or literally a word of God worldview. Anything that's contrary to the word of God, I don't care who's for it, I'm against it. Pure and simple. Now, does that make you popular? No, people will condemn you. And because of those two issues, because of gay marriage, and, uh, well, I said uh, I used one thing twice. Abortion is wrong because the Bible says that, that thou shalt not kill, literally thou shalt not murder. Folks, abortion is shedding innocent blood. That's what the definition of murder is. Abortion is shedding innocent blood. So I don't care who says what. I don't care what the poll numbers are. It's wrong according to the Bible. Now, those two things is what's caused people to call me racist. What did either one of those have to do with race? But boy, around election time, that was all that I heard. All the letters that I got, you're a racist. Without exception, every letter that I got criticizing me called me a racist. Because I say abortion is wrong according to the word and gay marriage is wrong according to the word. And I'm a racist? Seriously? So people will condemn you for it. You need to realize if you're going to take a a spiritual position and judge things according to the word, you're going to be in the minority. And if that bothers you, you might want to give it some thought. I decided not to let that bother me a long time ago. Because I'm going to be in a minority position no matter what. So I might as well just go all the way and accept the word to be true. Amen? He that is spiritual judges all things. If you don't know the word, you can't judge things. That's why it's so important to put the word of God first in your life. That's why the word of God is the standard that never changes. It never fails. It will never come to an end. This world will end, but the word of God will last forever. Now, folks, I'm not sure exactly how it works in heaven because there are a lot of Christians that are baby Christians and will be, be, will be baby Christians all of their lives, will be baby Christians when Jesus comes back. What happens with them? 
I can't imagine anything other than having to learn the Word of God in heaven. What other option would there be? The Word of God is the thing that doesn't fail. The Word of God is what, what will control eternity. So somewhere along the way, you're going to have to learn the Word of God. I'd rather learn it here and avoid classes there. Isn't that the better way? Because the more we put the word of God in practice in our lives here, the more blessings of God we'll receive, we'll reap in our lives. Well, why would we want to pass that up? For what? What pleasure is there in sin that beats the blessings of God? What popularity or or getting along with people or making them think well of you or making them think you're one of them, how does that compare to the blessings of God? Folks, nothing compares to the blessings of God as far as I'm concerned. He that is spiritual judges all things. You're going to have to be such a person of the word so that when something comes along, you know how to judge it. Or at least you know where to go to get the answer so that you can judge it. That means to search it out. That means to prove it and to hold fast to what's good. Toss out that which is not, but hold fast to that which is good. Thank God for his word. No wonder Psalm 119, daily Bible reading, Psalm 119, you come to that and think, oh, God, it'll take me forever. What is it, 106, 170 something verses, something like that? Every verse is David showing his appreciation for the word. I used to not understand Psalm 119. Now it's one of my favorite Psalms because I understand where David's coming from. He is so appreciative of the word of God, he says it again and again and again and again and again. That should be the attitude that we have toward God's word. Because it never fails. It'll put you over in every area of life. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it's true. Thank you for the supernatural aspect of the Holy Ghost. Thank you for leading us and guiding us. Thank you, Father, that you always confirm your word. Thank you for the inward witness of the Holy Ghost. Father, if that's all we ever have, that's enough. Because we know that's you. We know that signs and wonders and visions and dreams are no more supernatural than that simple inward witness that we have because the Spirit of God lives on the inside of us. Help us to have the appreciation that we should have for the Word of God in our lives, Father. So that we always hear and know your voice. So that we always know how to follow you and how to operate according to your will. Father, there are people here today that need direction. Thank you, Lord, for giving it to them. Thank you that it comes by simply knowing from within. Follow me. Obey my word. Do what I tell you to do. Lord, let us be a people that separate ourselves unto you. So that there's never a question of whether or not we're hearing the voice of the Spirit. Father, we know the Holy Ghost is always speaking to us. It's only a matter of us getting quiet that we may hear. Therefore, Lord Jesus, we declare, even as you said, that you are our shepherd. We hear and know your voice. We know that which is right. We know what to do. We know what direction to take. 
We know what steps to make. We know because we are led of the Holy Ghost. Our confession, our declaration, is even that which the Word says of us. We are led of the Holy Spirit because we are your children. Thank you, Father, that that's true in every area of life. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Let's all stand.